This episode is proudly brought to you from 99designs by Vista, a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to work with professional freelance designers from around the world. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Catherine Finney, the Managing General Partner of Genius Guild, which is a venture fund that invests in black entrepreneurs building scalable businesses that serve black communities and beyond. If you want to learn what it takes to become an innovator and build something of true worth from nothing and how to navigate the ever-changing entrepreneurial landscape and experience and overcome adversity like you wouldn't believe, please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Catherine Finney. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Oh my goodness, that's like such a long story, I think, for every entrepreneur. Um, I'm, I'm currently a venture capitalist, and I got my job as a venture capitalist by building things, essentially, and building successful things. Um, first, an early uh, startup that was in the sort of fashion blogging space way back in the stone ages of web 1.0 <laughs> in 2002. It was so long ago that there wasn't what you see is what you get platforms like WordPress and things that you see now. I had to learn how to build MySQL databases and HTML for any of the words to show up or the pictures that I bought at the local store of the shoes I bought on, uh, at, for sale to show up in the blog. Um, and so I sold, built that and sold it and then worked for another woman-led startup that also got bought. And being a part of those two exits and then subsequently creating um, one of the real groundbreaking social enterprises in the United States put me in a position to be able to, to start my fund. Um, and to be able to be an active investor. Yeah, awesome. And uh, being uh, from Australia and our HQ is here in Melbourne, I have to ask you about your rugby career. Has that helped you in yeah. business? You know, I've actually been to Australia and to New Zealand. I mean, I wasn't playing rugby at the time because rugby is next level um, where, and you, where you all are located. Um, you know, rugby was really instrumental to me. I played in college um, and also in graduate school and then also at the city level, the club level. And what was really instrumental is that I was part of the scrum. So I would either play second row and for a while there when I was in the best shape of my life, I played eight man. And it was, uh, you know, in the scrum, if you have one week player, the whole scrum is weak. It's not, it's not uh, an individual sort of sport in rugby. And that taught me a lot about building teams and working with teams and that everyone has to be strong. And if you have one player that isn't strong, then you all have to work to somehow either 
compensate or help that player become stronger because then the whole scrum is going to collapse. Um, and I think that's a really important lesson for business as you're building your companies is that, you know, you are only, as the saying goes, as strong as your weakest link. Your, your success is only going to be only as far as the weakest person, quote unquote, on your team. And so the goal is to support each other and make sure that every each other is doing what they're best at and they're in the right position. And a lot of that did come from my, my days playing rugby. Yeah, wow, interesting. So your first business was budget fashionista, right? Well, my very, very first business was a lucrative friendship bracelet business in the fourth grade, which um, would have been around nine or 10 years old. And I had cornered the friendship bracelet market um, in my hometown of Minneapolis. And, you know, I was making at the time, and this was in the 90s, you know, $50, $75 a week as a nine-year-old. And my parents would kind of say like, where is she getting this money from? I think maybe at first they thought I was doing something maybe slightly illegal because, you know, we would go out to family dinners and I would be able to say, you know, I got the check and I'm nine. And they're like, how are you getting money to pay for this? Um, I hired my brother, who's a, now a sales executive at Zoom. I hired him in, in what I like to tease him as his first sales job. Um, he was a, uh, a, a popular basketball player in high school. And I was, you know, still in elementary school, junior high. And I hired him as like my brand spokesperson. <laughs> and he helped me to, to sell, you know, custom made bracelets um, to fellow high schoolers, particularly those in the sports team. So having the coolest guys on the basketball team wear my bracelets really helped with business. And I would give them like free bracelets. I paid my brother like some small amount. I gave him a cut for every bracelet he sold. I mean, this was like at nine or 10. I was like thinking that, that strategically. And now that we're older, my brother often brings up how I would loan him money um, at a very competitive interest rates, but I did charge interest, even though I'm, you know, a, a kid. Um, and he would talk about how I would I would do that <laughs> and how I would get him to invest in my companies, but then I would still charge him interest for the money that I loaned him. So um, I think most of us who are entrepreneurs have similar stories of at a very early age being very entrepreneurial and being visionaries and that carrying on to our later successes. Mm. So tell me about budget fashionista. Like it started off as a hobby, right? Mm -hmm. When I started, for those of us who can remember 2002, 2001, no one knew what a blog was. There was no social media. Twitter hadn't been invented. Facebook was still three years away. Even Google was new. This is how long ago that was. And so no one thought that content on the web was going to be a thing. In fact, they often thought that it was going to be the opposite, that it was a fad. And um, as a result, many of our major publications did not invest in the internet. They actually did not have online um, editorial departments. Um, and and now it's weird 20 years later where everything is just all online, but at that time, and they fought it quite significantly. 
So coming along and being a blogger at that time was really great because what happened was that my content was syndicated out to Marie Claire, to Lucky Magazine, to the New York Times even. You know, all these publications because they did not invest in the internet. Hence why there was a a period of time where people were really um, concerned whether or not these publications were going to last. And we have seen the local newspapers across the world not be able to survive this sort of transition into the internet, mostly because they didn't invest, right? And that was great for someone like me who was a content producer that was all pretty much internet, was that I had this content that I could sell to these publications because they were too lazy to build their own. So it was a real business opportunity that was created. And that happened around 2004, 2005. In the U.S., we had an election in 2004. And in that election, um, it was a whole controversy regarding a group of bloggers called Swift Voters, in which they wrote about one of the presidential candidates and, and had questioned his bona fides. And that's when people start to actually pay attention to blogging and people start to know what a blog was. Um, and it was great for me because then subsequently a couple of years later, we had, you know, the global financial crisis and everyone then had to shop on a budget and they were looking for resources to teach them how to still live the life that they were used to, but, you know, at a, at a lesser cost. And one of the first things that came up was my, my blog. Um, And so really it was about timing and positioning yourself so that you're able to really capture um, market opportunities. And that's what I was able to do with the blog. Yeah, wow. So then what happened next? You know, I entered into an accelerator program. This was in 2009. I had this idea to build a a tech platform that was really a beauty company for African-American health here. In the United States, um, African-American women in particular purchase over 40% of all hair care products bought in the United States, um, in a massive over-index. Um, and, and now it makes sense, you know, 10, 15 years later, there's been massive exits um, in this space, the most famous being probably Shea Moisture that sold to Procter & Gamble, one of the big, you know, international, multinational Um, consumer packaged good company for close to $2 billion. When I started, no one saw the the opportunity. And so I entered into this accelerator program where I was met with the most extreme um, form of just sexism and racism that I had ever experienced. And, you know, I went to Yale. Um, I went to one of the top universities in the world and graduated at the top of my class. And so I grew up as an overachiever and it was the first time that I was met with people who did not think I could do what I could do simply because of my race and my gender, not anything to do with me and my merits. And it was very difficult for me um, because I felt I was fighting something that had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with my business. It had nothing to do with whether or not I could actually execute what I, what it is that I was setting out to do. Luckily for me, I had the budget fashionista and I had this business and it was a viable business. And I just turned to doing that and kind of like just completely let go of the sort of traditional tech space. Um, And then when I sold the budget fashionista and went on to work for BlogHer, I got to see what happens when you work for a venture-backed company. And this was in 2011, 2012. At that time, there were very few to know 
women-led companies that had received venture capital. And Blog Her, which was founded by three women, was one of the very few that had, particularly from Silicon Valley. And so working with that and seeing what it was like to work with a venture-backed company, seeing how you had to scale, um, and scale was very, very important, and growth was very, very important, had you know, a profound impact on me. I also noticed that there weren't a lot of people who looked like me who were creating companies. And so I started a social enterprise called Digital Undivided, started in 2012, and now subsequently the social enterprise has a budget of over eight figures and several loca- uh, offices around the, actually around the world now, outside of the continent of the U.S. And so I started that and I grew it, um, and I was able to do that because I had a successful exit. Um, if I hadn't had my exit, I would not have had the ability to do something as bold as Digital Undivided. I would have had to take a very traditional corporate job um, and I wouldn't have been able to, to create this groundbreaking organization. And so, um, and that all is because I was able to have an exit um, and I was able to be a part of another exit. And then I was able to be a part of this amazing social enterprise. And so all of that led to me being in the VC space where I'm at right now and and being able to invest in that 20 years of experience, I was able to see a lot of companies come and go. I was able to spend time with a lot of founders and a lot of CEOs and really get an understanding of what it takes to sort of win, which led to my my book, Build a Damn Thing, um, in which I put in for everyone who's you know, basically not a rich white guy. Like, how do you, how do you build a company when you don't have that sort of access to those sort of networks that come from, you know, being at Stanford or Harvard or MIT? Mm. So I'm curious, um, building companies like pre-Instagram, Facebook, Google, um, how do you drive traffic? Yeah, you know, for us, it was simply understanding search engine optimization, SEO. Um, my husband at the time had was was kind of in the sort of web design space, if we remember back when you used to hire web designers, and, and had did some reading on Google and how Google was going to change um, how we search for things online. Prior to Google, you used to use tools like AltaVista or GeoCities. There wasn't a real mapping of the web. It was, you would type in a search into AltaVista and it would kind of just be, you know, whatever was on AltaVista's mind, but it wasn't necessarily a a true um, ranking algorithm to help bring out what was most important. And that's really how Google revolutionized things. It it found the pages based upon the interests of everyone else. And I'm simplifying their algorithm, but they basically found based upon, you know, the keywords in the document, based upon the number of times people looked at it, based upon how long people stayed on your page. And it ranked them higher based upon that. So you were starting to get more relevant results rather than this hodgepodge of whatever, you know, they thought was important. And that really revolutionized how people search for things. And if you understood, particularly in the beginning days, how that worked, you were able to really be able to drive a significant amount of traffic to your site, which is exactly what we did. Yeah, I see. And um, I'm curious, how how big was the site by the time you sold it? How much traffic were you driving? Yeah, we were driving on average 
about 5 million uniques a month. So, and, and now that seems like incredible because you have so much competition. So it's hard to get that number of uniques. Um, but back then, it, you know, there wasn't as much competition. Um, and so it was able to really strategically place the site in a way um, in which we could really capitalize off of, of, of sort of the growth of the internet, the growth of search engines, because we kind of grew up with Google. As Google got more popular and more powerful, so did we. Um, and we were able to really benefit from it. So when I sold the company, it wasn't even just the traffic or, or the, the income that it generated. What also was attractive was that the domain was very old. At this point, the domain is almost 20 years old. Um, and so, you know, that was very attractive to have this old domain that had been around and in continuous use for, at the time I sold it, almost 10 years, made it a very lucrative property. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. So the founder domain with founder, like without the E, that domain's been around for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. That's value. That's that's IP in that. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. Even though somebody was parking on it for a long time and I bought it off them? As long as it was active, like, and there was content, Google is going to look at it as, as being good. Um, now, if it wasn't active... That, that might be a challenge, um, but if it had content in the site, um, you, you are looked a little bit more favorably by Google than a company that just started yesterday. Because the idea is that if you've been actively using this website for a certain amount of years and you have traffic coming and people are staying on your page, then you have reached a certain level of authority, that this is something that's obviously people are engaging with. Um, Versus if you just started it yesterday and you just created the domain yesterday. Hey, Founder Fam, I want to take a quick break from the conversation to talk about a pain point for a lot of you out there. And that's finding quality design help to build your brand. Whether it's a logo, website or packaging, you can spend hours trying to do it yourself and still end up with nothing. That's where 99designs by Vista comes in. With its contest model, you can invite an entire global creative community to participate in your project and submit ideas. It's like having an entire design department at your fingertips. And at Founder, we've worked with 99designs before in the past to create a special issue of our magazine. And it really transformed the quality of the project by having a bunch of concepts to choose from and being able to collaborate with creators from all over the world. From pitch to perfection, 99designs will be there with you every step of the way. They'll help you transform your idea in your head into a valuable piece of content or branding for your business. And together with 99designs, we're offering you a $30 discount on your first design contest. So just head to 99designs.com forward slash founder to learn more or get started on your project today. Okay, now let's jump back into the episode. Let's talk about Genius Guild. I want to shift gears. So tell me about how that idea came up. You know, Genius Guild is really something I've been thinking about for years. Um, Digital Undivided, the social enterprise that I found it, was in many ways the MVP, the minimal viable product for Genius Guild. It was just too early to do it at the time I started Digital Undivided. And so Genius Guild, we started in 2020. It was really, you know, the pandemic. I'm a trained epidemiologist, so um, you can imagine how many texts I was receiving. <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic. 
And I knew that it was going to get bad, not because I wanted it to, but I knew that we hadn't done in the United States in particular enough investment in our public health infrastructure. So it was going to be hard. And unlike Australia, it's virtually impossible to shut down our borders of a country the size of the United States. It just, it would just be impossible. And they tried and it just was like horrible. So I knew that it was going to be um, particularly impactful here in the U.S. And then also, at the, you know, a couple months later, George Floyd happened. Um, a man was murdered um, by police officers in my hometown. I am from Minneapolis and went to elementary school about a half a mile or so, I guess what would be what, one kilometer away from where he was murdered. And, you know, I, and I wasn't living in Minneapolis at the time. I was actually far away in, a, in the Southern part of our country and was just paralyzed. Like I couldn't do anything. We had this pandemic, so we couldn't travel or really get on airplanes. We, you know, this, my, my hometown was burning down the places that I knew and I couldn't really physically be there. And so all of that led to Genius Guild and the creation of Genius Guild and this idea of what if we created a space where everyone won, everyone could win. Um, me as an investor, I, I win. Um, the founders who are creating companies, they win. But also the communities in which these companies exist also win as well. Um, and, and this sort of going against this extractive notion, particularly of venture, where only a couple of people are going to win and everyone else is like deemed to fail. Um, and like, how do we rethink that? Is there another way of doing this? And that's where Genius Guild was born from. Yeah, I see. And what what uh, is the thesis, like general thesis for the kind of companies you invest in? Is it particular industries? Uh, I'm really curious. So we invest in companies that have at least one of the founders is part of the African diaspora. So that's one criteria. And we tend to invest mostly in health and green and, and clean energy. That is where my particular interests are, are lie. Um, and we've made a number of investments in that space. And this is very strategic. Um, one is space I know. <laughs> I know, I know health. Um, two, if you look at, you know, a lot of the MA activity, merchant acquisitions activities, especially from the beginning of this year, some of the biggest purchases were done in the health space. Some of the biggest ones, yes. Um, so, you know, uh, CVS, which is a, a big uh, drugstore here in the United States, I don't know how global they are, um, bought Signify Health, which is a value-based healthcare start, excuse me, startup for $8 billion. You had Amazon buying One Medical. You have Walmart, which is a global company who's really starting to get um, into health, creating Walmart health centers. And so they're looking for acquisition opportunities to help them really build that out as well. So all of the big opportunities are happening in health. Um, while other markets have slowed down, health continues to increase. Um, we are also seeing you know, acquisitions from pharmaceuticals and others who are looking at ways to um, not only diversify their clinical trials, but also help manage them better. Um, if anything we learned from the pandemic is that we're probably going to get another one at some point. <laughs> and the ability to produce vaccines quickly has a massive impact on global health. Um, we were able to produce vaccines faster than in any other point in history. And as a result, it's pretty dramatic how that's been able to save the population. 
um, from this deadly disease. And so we know another one's coming. And so there's a lot of M&A and investment activities in startups that are building ways for us to make sure that when the next one comes, we're even better prepared to be able to address it. Mm. And what's been uh, your most successful investment thus far? Can you tell us about the company? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard because, you know, in VC, particularly early stage, it's the ability to raise the next stage because, you you know, it's too early to have an exit. And so I'm often like, you know, I don't really say which is our most successful because because of that. Um, because someone may be able to raise their next stage, but that doesn't mean they're going to exit at that amount. Uh, and so... I talk about what companies I'm very excited about, and I'm excited about our entire portfolio. Um, we have, you know, a company called Juno Medical that is uh, creating a primary healthcare platform that centers moms. Moms are often the ones that make the chief decisions regarding medica- medical care for their families. And so um, this company centers them. So when you go into to the doctor, at least here in the United States, um, we don't have the most efficient healthcare system, as many of you probably know. Um, we, we don't do a lot of things efficient sometimes here. And so what they've done is that on one side of the practice, is, it's primary care, women's health and things like that. And then the other side is pediatrics. So as a mom, you come in and you can get your kids can be seen at the same time you're being seen, which is really helpful. Another company that we've invested in that has a, a real opportunity for global disruption is UMe, which is a child mental health platform, a telemedicine platform. Um, there is a, a global mental health crisis for children, and many have not figured out how to serve that population, except for this founder who's exceptional. Um, we've invested in a supply chain company working to help um, corporations better manage and diversify their supply chain. And so these are the sort of things that I'm super, super excited about. Um, so none of them are my favorite or my best. They're just all doing really, really cool stuff. Um, and I'm super excited to be able to work with all of them. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm curious, you said you said you, you referred to one one of the founders as exceptional. What do you look for in in founders that that makes you want to invest in them? What what are the qualities? What are the traits? What are the characteristics? What are the the must-haves from your perspective to back a winner? The Well, first, the ability to be mentored. Um, can Are you mentorable? Can I give you feedback and will you be able to take it and, and act upon it or not act upon it, but whatever the reason you're able to hear it and, and listen to it, that's a very, very big one. And I think most VCs would probably say that's true you know, for all of us. Um, I like people who are curious. This, this problem that you're solving with your company fascinates you. And you are so focused on finding the solution that you're curious, you wanna know everything about it. Um, by that same token, also people who have domain knowledge, I find that those who have domain knowledge and really understand the um, company, really understand the space that they're in are often those that are most successful. Um, because they have the, they have the, they know what it takes to be successful in the space. They're able to have the network to be able to get the people to help them. So those are things that I look for. I look for people who are good people. I like to invest in good people. Um, if you are, you know, excuse my language, an, an asshole, then I don't care how great your company is. I don't want to work with you. 
Um, because, you know, when you are a VC, particularly at my stage, you're going to be with this company for five to seven years. And who wants to spend five or seven years with an asshole? Like, you, you know, you don't want to do that. And it's a lot of your time and commitment. Um, as soon as I'm off our interview, I have to counsel one of our founders who is trying to, you know, do some hiring challenges. Um, so your work is never done, even though it's, you know, headed to evening here. And so I have to feel passionate and want to be able to talk to this founder and help them through challenges. And if I don't want to do that, then I'm not going to be very effective as an investor. And so I don't invest in companies that I'm not passionate about and founders who I'm not passionate about. You said, uh, look for good people. How do you know if someone's a good person? I think, you know, one of the things I ask people is like, what do they value? And, and you, you wouldn't believe how many people are thrown off by that. I'm like, it's not a trick question. I'm just asking like, what, what are your values? What is it that you care about? What is it that matters to you? And if that throws you off, then, then, you know, maybe that's a, another, that's a red flag for me because you should know what it is that you're about particularly if you're raising millions of dollars and particularly if you're trying to lead a group of people. The worst thing is to follow someone who doesn't know who they are. It is very difficult to be a good leader if you don't know who you are and what you stand for. It makes it infuriating to follow those people. And I think we've all been in business environments where we've had to follow people who, who don't know who they are and who don't have sort of their core values laid out and it becomes very difficult to, to follow them. And so how I determine is asking, like, what is it that you believe in? Tell me what are the, some of the things that you care about? Um, and if you have somebody who doesn't seem like they care about anything, then that should be a red flag. Um, most founders have something where it may be, you know, I really care about my family. That means a lot to me. Or I really care about my team and making sure that we create something that's really sustainable, something that really contributes to the world. Whatever it may be, having that core values is, is one of the ways that I help determine, um, you know, who's a good person and who I feel like I can work with. Mm, yeah, I can really resonate with that. So I'm curious as well, what does it mean to you to build your own rules of entrepreneurship? It means that, you know, we're often told that things operate in a certain way. And that's true until they don't, right? And, the, and inherently in entrepreneurship, particularly in startup entrepreneurship, is disruption. That's the center of it. And so as an entrepreneur, having that vision of like what it's going to take to disrupt whatever it is that you're trying to disrupt is central. And in, in order to do disruption, you're going to have to write a little bit of your own rules. You need to know what the rules are, and then you need to know which ones you can break in order to do it. But there's no one who's been disruptive that said, I'm going to do it by following the rules. I think if we look at all the disruptors in the world, um, from the Elon Musk to even down to the Oprah's, all of them did things completely different and usually from went against people who told them that can't be done, right? That can absolutely not be done. No one else has ever did it, so you're not going to be the one. And then they went and they proved it, and now we're all following after them. Mm. I'm curious around adversity. What advice do you have for people that may be experiencing adversity right now or, or will in the future? I think this is where doing the work on your core values becomes really helpful and actually writing them down. It has helped me enormously to get through some sticky times because I understood the decisions I made and they were grounded in something. 
And I think it's very, very important to make sure your decisions are grounded in something. Some people say it's their faith, their religious faith. Some people, it's, it's their core values, whatever it may be. Grounding your decision-making in something that's solid um, really helps you through those tough times because you understand that you're making decisions not from a point of fear, but from a point of opportunity. You're making it from a point of faith. Right. Wherever in faith, again, I don't mean that in a religious standpoint, but faith in terms of I have this foundation that I believe in and that my decisions come from that. And I can feel solid that I'm making the right decisions because of that. And was there ever a time when you were experiencing adversity or a sticky time that you, you almost felt like giving up or you almost gave up? Oh, lots of times. <laughs> I think that's part of the process of entrepreneurship. Right. It's 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 a marathon, not a race. And how do you stick through those times that you want to give up? Because as an entrepreneur, you're going to have those times. That's that's a guarantee. Um, you know, it is not, this is not an easy path. And in many ways, people would, might say it's irrational to be an entrepreneur because it's so hard and it's so much easier to just go work for someone else and get a paycheck that you don't have to worry about. But us entrepreneurs choose this path because we want a creative life in which we can control. And entrepreneurship allows us to do that and to have control over our lives that our colleagues who work at corporate America and and, in business structures don't. And so we tolerate it. And part of that is failure. Failure is the norm in entrepreneurship. And the quicker you become comfortable with that, the better. And I talk about that quite significantly in Build a Damn Thing about failure about how Beyonce failed. This is like my favorite story because, you know, Beyonce is going on tour now. So I could tell this. Beyonce, when they, when the early versions of Destiny's Child competed on a TV show that was popular in the 1980s in, in the U.S. called Star Search. I don't know if it was a, a global um, television show. but It's really popular here. And Beyonce and and that version of Destiny's Child that it also included Kelly Rowland, who later was uh, part of the larger Destiny Child, they lost to a heavy metal band called Skeleton Crew. And Beyonce was like 12 or 13 at that time. A very public loss because this is on national TV here in the United States. Now, imagine if Beyonce said, ah, I'm done after that. <laughs> very public lost. Eh, I'm just going to be a regular kid. Uh, who cares about this like pop stardom sort of thing? We, we would be missing out on one of the queens of pop, right? But she didn't. She actually took that as a lesson and they went back to the drawing board. They changed their name. They got better clothes. They started to write their own music and songs and start to be more authentic. And then, you know, about five years later, they had their first big hit, which was No, No, No which was actually about the rejection they had faced <laughs> um, in, in going through and getting to that point. And now, you know, let's say almost 30 years later um, or 25 years later, you know, we have Beyonce getting ready to go on a global tour in which, you know, tickets are selling for 50K, 50,000 US dollars. So, you know, it's a very different world. But imagine if Beyonce gave up. Imagine that. Yeah, it's been awesome, Catherine. So look, we're going to work towards wrapping up. We're going to move to the hot seat round now. These are rapid fire questions. Uh, the first one that I have for you is, what was your most memorable moment at the White House Champion of Change? As a White House Champion of Change. I think the most memorable moment was looking out 
from the stage and sing my mother. And, you know, the coolest amount of brownie points you can get as a kid is to bring your mother to the White House, right? That's, that's pretty, you know, meeting president and stuff. That's, that's a pretty, a pretty big deal. And so the fact that I was able to bring my mother with me, um, was probably one of the coolest moments there and and looking out and seeing her and seeing how proud she was that that was amazing what makes a business idea good what makes a business idea good is that people are willing to pay a premium for it meaning they're able to play the cost that it does it what it costs to actually make it including your salary and the salaries of the staff and labor plus a premium on it whatever the margins are in your particular business that's what makes a business idea good if you don't have people willing to pay you that, then what you have is a hobby, not a business idea. And there's nothing wrong with hobbies, but it's not the same as a business idea. What's the first step in, re- in regards to starting a business from zero? The first step is getting it out of your head and onto paper. I meet with a lot of entrepreneurs who have everything in their head. They have it completely built in their head, but there's no physical product. And me as an investor, I want to see something. Even if it's a scribble on a napkin, I need to see that you're starting to actualize the idea um, in order for me to get excited and even possibly remotely consider investment. And so for an entre- as an entrepreneur and for the entrepreneurs out there, actualize your idea. Get it out of your head and start to actually work it and get it out and, get in- and start getting feedback from people. What's something you've learned today? Oh, what I haven't learned today? Um, well that there's a great podcast in Melbourne, Australia that I didn't know about. That was one, one thing. Um, and just, you know, it's always a, something I'm always learning about how to pace myself. Um, you know, I'm a type of person who always comes from a position of yes. I want to say yes to everything and learning how to pace myself. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's a skill to really learn because there's always something to do and there's always some place to go. And so, learning which are the things that are going to drive your business is super important. What is the, what is the 20% that drives 80% of your business? Right. And so um, that's something I'm always working with and always in managing. Final question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur dead or alive, who would it be and why? So I have two, I would love to have dinner with RuPaul um, who has built an entire business and he, and, and, and don't get it wrong. RuPaul is a businessman um, off of giving opportunity to a marginalized group of people. If we can think who would have thought 10 years ago that drag Queens would be driving popular culture in the public as much as drag Queens do mostly because of the platform that RuPaul has created. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. And so spending time with him and learning, like, how did he do it? Like, what was the vision? How did he know that it was going to be this, where it would it's become? I think would it would be fascinating for me. Of course, Oprah, because she's Oprah. Um, I don't even think I need to quantify why meeting with Oprah would, would be great. But she's definitely one... I don't think I would want to meet with the Elon Musk of the world because I'm not sure if I would learn that much new. Um, and I always find I like to meet with entrepreneurs who have built things that were not obvious. And I think actually what he's done is pretty obvious considering the resources he had at his disposal. 
I'm always interested in talking to people who didn't have resources yet still built, right? Built these incredible companies and businesses with no, little to no resources and little or no opportunities and networks. Because it's easy to build a Tesla if you know people who can write you a billion dollars in investment. It's another thing to build a company when you don't know anyone who could write you $5,000, but yet you build it and you scale it into something quite amazing. And those are the people who I want to spend dinner with. Mm, I respect that. Awesome, Catherine. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we can wrap there. Thank you. Have a great day. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.